Last Shabbos I was in Toronto. Uh, there's something called the Shabbos Project where people all over the world uh, try and invite people to keep a Shabbos and join in. And so I was in Toronto, I was staying with an old friend of mine and he's a psychologist and his name is Matty Rothman. And he asked me a very interesting, well, it turned out to be a very interesting story. He said, have you seen, apparently there's a documentary somebody made and I, I wrote down the name here, it was called Three Identical Strangers. And I said, no, what's that about? He said, you've got to watch this. So it's, absolute, it's actually heartbreaking and very distressing. Apparently, I think in the, in the 60s, maybe, maybe 70s, I can't remember, in New York, one of the large Jewish organizations there, uh, they helped, or they were Isaac in taking ch Jewish children that were born and having the children fostered or adopted by, by people, by Jewish parents. But what it came out in the movie was that there was a whole, there were shutfim with a famous psychologist who was, who'd fled, an Austrian Yid, who'd fled from the Nazis, and it seems very much that he was very much inspired by their experiments. Now, if that sounds strange, I was astonished to see this. They wanted to see, the old question was a famous kasha, everybody knows the question, are we who we are because of our nature? Or are we who we are because of our nurture, the way we're brought up? So is it Sviva or it's, it's Teva? That's the, the Shaila. So it's called three identical strangers because there was three identical twin uh, triplets. Identical. They separated them at birth and they gave them to different families. And they didn't tell them. The children were brought up not knowing that they had two identical brothers. And they discovered each other when they were 19 by accident. The experiment was to see, because they're identical, the experiment was to see whether or not they would grow up if they're brought up in different houses with different families, whether they would grow up to be different people or the same person. So to understand that wonderful solution to the, the age-old question of nature or nurture, they were quite happy to take three brothers, three identical triplet brothers, and separate them. And there was others as well. I'm not going into the morals of it. Obviously, I think for most of us here would find that a terribly horrible thing to do. But they these three triplets rediscovered themselves. The interesting thing was, as they progressed through life, they were, I mean, when they first met each other, and apparently should have been, they were in some TV show, and was, there was a big deal. They, they, they had so many things in common. It was mumsh, unbelievable. Uh, they all liked the same food. They all liked the same, they tasted everything. They all wear the same sort of clothes, even though they didn't know that their, twi their triplet, their identical brothers, uh, existed. They were so, so very similar. And the whole thing was going into the, the hashkof of what, what, whether this was right or not. But at the end, it turns out that Nebuch, one of them, Nebuch killed himself. And it came out really interesting that the maskona, it swapped at the end. The maskona was that really you could see quite clearly. To make it to be a big uh, media event, they were looking for what they had in common. Nobody wanted to look for what they didn't have in common. And it came out the Moscona was, quite clearly, and this was the psychologist wanted me to see, that really, despite their similarities, they were ultimately very, very different. After all, one killed themselves, the other two didn't kill themselves. They were very, very different people. So, this is the old question, nature or nurture. 
And I saw, I've got to tell you, I saw um, uh, just uh, when I was uh, saying Shirim in Los Angeles over, uh, over Sukkot, I saw a wonderful thing from the Mabit. And it got me very, very excited. The Mabit, is that a cedar there? Uh, cedar anywhere? Oh. Got a cedar? Yeah, one of, one of these Hebrew prayer books. Thank you. I think this has got it in there. So the Mabit says a very interesting thing. If you go into a shul, I can't remember if the shul here has this. Very, very often, you look in the shul, then they have, on top of the Ornakodesh, they often have um, wooden Aseris Adibros. Sometimes it's a little round top, sometimes it's a square, because it was actually a cube originally. Lubavitch Rebbe made a whole big rush about this once upon a time. But if you look, very often what they have is the two words, so that everybody knows you've got, on the, on the right hand side, it's Ben Odom Lamok. And left hand side, the five mitzvahs there of the Sarah Sadibras are Ben Odom Lechaveri. So I don't know why I never, I never had this before. When you see them on the Ornakaidish, it usually says just two words, right? So the first one is Anochi Hashem. So let's say Anochi Hashem, that's it. And then the next thing, the next, Lo Yiyeh. And so on and so forth. And then it gets to the other side, Lo Sirtzak, Lo Signov, Lo Sigzok, fine. Lo Sinov, etc., fine. So the Mabit said something that I should have chapped a long, a long time ago. But of course the problem with all of us is we don't tend to think very much. That can't be right. Because the way they write it, the way they, the artists do it, to make it look symmetrical, to look balanced, just two words. Right? Anachia Hashem. And Lo Loyi rather. And then Lo Tzitzach. And it looks very good. Five, two words on one side. Five, two words on the other side. But that's nonsense. Because the words on the right-hand column in the Bein Odom Lamokoim, it actually says, Anachi Hashem Elokech. This is the first one. Anachi Hashem, right? And, Elokech Hashem Hatzitzach Meretz Yisrael Babes Ababim. Boom. So write all that in there. Then the next one. Lo Yilcho Elokim Achirim Malponei. Lo Sazlcho Pesel. Kol Tumunas Asher B'Shomayim Emal. Ba'Oris Mitachas. Asher B'Mayim Mitachas Lo'Oris. Lo Sitzachavet. You're getting the idea? But on the... On the other side, in the Ben Odom Le Chaveroi, then that's exactly what it says. Two words. Loisirtsach, Loisinov, Loisignov. The next one, Loisana, Berecha, Eishekar. In other words, if we were to write all the words on the, the pillar here on the right hand side, there's hundreds of them. And on the right hand side, there's just a few. the left hand side, there's just a few. So the Mabit says something incredibly interesting. So how. Does that look symmetrical? How does it look balanced? And we're talking the luchas that Hashem sent down. The letters, the few, much fewer letters on the Ben Odom Le Chavero side and the left hand side to fill up the space were big letters. Much bigger. And he says, that, do you know why? Because it's far more difficult to deal with people. So it's got to be big letters. That's why, if you look at the Sefer Torah, of course, it says, Shema Yisrael, Shem Lekin, Shem Echod, Big Dalad. Then there's another posse, don't worship other gods, Elohim Acher, Big Resh, because you get the Dalad and the Resh mixed up. You make the letters big, if it's important not to get it mixed up. Well, don't get it mixed up. It's harder dealing with people than it is dealing with Hashem Yisborach. Very interesting idea. Anyway, so basically... That's particularly true these days. There is uh, 
a magazine, and the magazine is called National Geographic. If you ever go to the dentist, or you go to your doctor's waiting room, there's almost always a National Geographic there. Rabbi I'm not suggesting you should look at this. Uh, sometimes there are things there you shouldn't be looking at. Uh, it's meant to be scientific and intellectual. And there was a piece uh, somebody sent me from this, and this was the title. Are we really as awful as we act online? Now, for those who are complete amaratsim uh, and don't know what that means, allow me to contaminate you. Uh, basically, there is such a thing as social media. Uh, things like Facebook, are you, f are you all familiar with this thing? And tweeting and all, oh, you've probably heard of tweeting, right? Um, anyway, basically, when people, and I've seen this myself, I have a Facebook page with 5,000 uh, of my friends and Talmudian there. And if you say something that people don't like, I'm telling you, the, the viciousness is literally on a sheer. It's unbelievable, the things that people say. Anyway, so there's a, a scientist, a, a, a psychologist, and he uh, is writing an article about, are we really as awful as we act online? And he writes, it's not brutish human nature that prompts nasty posts and tweets, the author says, but how we evolved. <laughs> we evolved. How we evolved, you remember when we were all apes? Um, then that's, that's what it's all about. But there's a, there's a, he quotes here from, uh, from uh, the Pew Institute. How and why American adults abusing each other on the internet. It was a study that said, they, they did 4,000 people. Four out of 10 said they'd been subject to harassing behavior. Politics was the issue most likely to trigger harassment. About a third of those have been attacked, Democrats and Republicans equally, said it was due to their political beliefs. More than half of those who have been harassed said they didn't even know who the, who the person was. The chulah, the chulah. And I remember uh, saying something uh, on my webpage, and some guy, the language that he used, I mean, it's nice, you can just get rid of the guy. Um, you can you just press the button and he's gone. But it's vile, it's, it's vicious. I mean, of course, if you went up and said that to somebody to his face, there's a good chance you might... Um, have to visit the dentist, um, but the, but when you do online, it's you can get away with a lot more, and it brings out the worst in people. And this is what this guy writes. So again, he comes back to our question: Is it that we behave so badly when we're doing and these online things because of nature or nurture? And this is what the scientist says. Let me explain. We've all heard about the diet-conscious axiom: you are what you eat. Right? You've all heard that, right? I know lots of bagels and lots of cholents, etc. But when it comes to our behavior, a more apt variation is you are whom you meet. How we perceive, experience, and act in the world is intensely shaped by who and what surround us on a daily basis, our families, communities, institutions, beliefs, and role models. That's interesting. So he comes down again with the Moscona that really it's it really, from his point of view, it's, it's again, it's, it's a question of nurture, not nature. But this, this film showed it was nature. I thought it was nurture. So both seem to agree that it's the way that makes you who you are. So far, so good. Are you with me so far? So people are difficult, right? That's why big letters in the, in the Seris of Vibras. And also, in today's world, people are really, can be extraordinarily unpleasant. Here is um, 
from somebody who's a rabbi who posted this in his Facebook page and he's connected to me so it popped into my Facebook page. My Facebook page. When I saw this, as you'll, I'll explain to you in a second, I thought, and I know this fellow, he's a young fellow, um, and I was struggling what to do about this. Uh, this is what he writes. Around 10 years ago, I had a conversation with a, a world-renowned Poisic that truly shook me. However, to understand the conversation, a little background is necessary. Some months previously, I began work at a school alongside a female teacher in her early 20s, who I presume was married because she was wearing a shade. However, as she explained to me, she was not married, at least anymore. Sadly, she had been in an abusive marriage, and though she had since received her get, she understood that she still needed to wear a shetel. But as she confided to me, every morning when she puts on the shetel, she felt very distressed as it reminded her of a horrible marriage. With me so far? Okay. I explained to her that while I respected whatever she did, Ramosha Feinstein had written a, a responsum, a teshuva. Write that down, please. Responsum. Uh, responsum, stating that a young divorcee would be permitted to remove her shetel, especially where she was interested in remarrying, as was the case here. So there's a very interesting shuva, and Ramosh Yitaka does paskin like that. For Shetetzach, I think I'm not giving you any chidushim that not everybody was masking to that psak, but Ramosh paskins like that, fine. She was unaware of this position and wanted to know more, so I translated the responsum and gave it to her. Nevertheless, given her loyalty to halacha, she wanted to receive halachic approval from a world-renowned poisic, and having identified someone whose opinion she would follow, she asked me to call him on her behalf to discuss. I don't know why she didn't phone him herself. I made the call and both clearly and firmly explained the situation. However, the emotional anguish felt by the woman through her shetel was of no significance to him. And in response to her desire to remove her shetel for reasons of shuduchim, he said that any man who she'd be, she'd be interested in marrying would not be bothered by her wearing a shadow. As I ended the conversation, says this young rabbi, I want, he puts this on his Facebook page so hundreds and hundreds of people can read this. I was in shock that someone regarded so wise had so profoundly ignored the emotional needs of a woman who had suffered so much. And then he goes on to tell another story, another story of another woman. And the woman went to see another rabbi, and the rabbi again didn't treat her very nicely and told that to him. And then he, after giving a little misadrasha, and then he writes, uh, ultimately, while my message is clear, it certainly deserves repeating, and that is, if you're privileged to be the person who people turn to for advice and guidance, make sure you listen, make sure you think, and make sure you care. Like, obviously, he does. And if you don't, I suggest you find a different profession because both these women deserve so much more understanding than what they received. That's bad English. They should just say, than they received. Okay. So I read this and I spent a long time worrying about this. And I thought to myself, should I intervene here? And eventually I decided I had to because I remembered a Gomorrah which I want to share with you. But you see, basically what happened when he put this on his Facebook page, it provoked an avalanche of rabbi bashing. And literally there was scores of people, yeah, and I went to a rabbi, or I heard about somebody and the rabbi did, and he wasn't kind. And blah, blah. Now, we've got a couple of young men at the back there. 
Hello, young man. Uh, are you any good at math? Any good at math, guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah, everybody's scared to say they're not good at math. Okay. Okay, see if you can get this one. What's two times nothing? <laughs> Who said that? Oh, I wanted them to get it, right? Two times nothing is nothing. So first of all, we get the story of this rabbi who says he went to a Paisic and the Paisic wasn't uh, understanding about this woman. As Adus, what is that? As Adus. Nothing. Then he's got the story which he, he didn't hear, but the lady told him about another rabbi and, who wasn't, and he puts this there on his page. And is that Adus? Nothing. What's two nothings? Nothing. And then there's a whole load of other people. So I decided that I had to intervene. And so I said to him, surely you believe that the person has the right to reply? We're only hearing one side of any story. Everybody here. But it was all, the whole thing was got very angry, just like that quote. And all the, it wasn't just some rabbis. No, there's a couple of people. It was all, most, most rabbis. Most rabbis, et cetera, et cetera. So I wasn't going to say anything. And then I remember the Gomorrah and Marcus. And uh, the Gomorrah and Marcus uh, and the Gomorrah and Sanhedrin. So the Gomorrah and Marcus talks about standing up for somebody when they come into a room if he's a Talmud Chok. Okay? So Gomorrah there, it's a discussion about whether or not you give Arboim Marcus to somebody, and the rabbis say, of course, it's not Arboim. The rabbis say it should be 39. And there's different, I mean, if you've learned Marcus, you know there's all sorts of variations the rabbis come up with. And then the Gemara says that uh, it's, it's uh, an, an astonishing thing. He says, Omarova, Kama Tipshi Shar Inshi. How many people are such Tipshim? Fools! The Kaima Mekame Sefer Torah, they will stand up in front of a Sefer Torah. The Loi Kaima Mekame Gavra Rabbah, but they won't stand up in front of a Talmud Kochem. Okay? Why is that stupid? Because in the Sefer Torah it says 40. But the Chachamim, the Tomini Chachamim, it says it could be 39. Actually, it could be less, it could be 18. So if you're just going according to what the Halacha says, what the Torah says, then you're stuck. But the Rabbonim were able to change it. Fine. Why is it say Tipshin? This is what the Marshal says. I think you should hear this. The Marshal says, listen to this. Stam Anoshim She'enim B'nei Torah. The majority of people are not beneath Torah Mazalzalim, but Tamidi Chachamim, they make fun and they ridicule and they think nothing of Tamidi Chachamim. But Omri Ma'am O'Olim Lo Nechamim, what do you need Chachamim for? What are you rabbis for? Halam O'Olim Lo Omro Chidosh Lo Lehetzer Velo They don't say anything. Nothing to say. No Hetzer, no Isa. It's all written there in the Torah. El Advarim Hamafurshim B'Torah. Everything's written in the Torah in the Chumash. They think you don't need Rabbonim, you don't need Tomei Chachamim. This is the Marshal. We don't need them at all. That's why they'll stand up for the Sefer Torah. But they won't stand up for Chachamim. But the Gemara there, and now he's quoting the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Kuf Amad Aleph, Anybody who's mezalzal tomidi chachomim, nechshabim apikorsim, are considered to be apikorsim. Varoa tam hadovash esham, and the Gemara there says, Roba kan omer hi shagam im enim azin benehem mechomim begoli, 
even Rabbi says there, even if they don't openly make fun of Tamidichamim, but you can see from their behavior or the look in their face, they don't think much of Tamidichamim. If they wouldn't call them Apikorsim because they haven't said, but still they're teaching, they're fools. To make fun of Tamidichamim, that's Apikorsis. And listen to this, and this is why. So, I would argue, and incidentally, it's quite clear. No, it's true, as somebody said, one of this rabbi's uh, chassidim, said he didn't say who the rabbi was. But he's put up a post which literally scores of people have attacked Chachamim. And if you're attacking a group of people, is that Lashon Hora? If you say the people in Munsi are brute, right, Chassid, Shalom. Um, but if you were to say that, is that Lashon Hara? I'm not said Yankul who lives in Munsi or Shmuel who lives in Munsi. But if you say the, the Mun, what's the name for people who live in Munsi? Munsiers? <laughs> Munsi? I don't know. Yeah, never occurred to me before. Munsi Nicks. <laughs> Munsi Nicks. If you say that Munsi Nicks are rude, is that Lashon Hara? A hundred percent is Lashon Hara. You can say Lashon Hara about a clown, a group of people, people living in a town. It's, it's absolutely not true. And if it is true, I'm still washing her. So here's the Gemara in Sanhedrin. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells an interesting story. That this is very intriguing because here Rashi, of course, we all know the, the shtick about, about Rashi, the greatness of Rashi is, is very brief. And here's Rashi. Oof. A whole big thing here. And I'll listen, I'll tell you, don't worry, we're not going through the whole thing, but I'll let, tell you this story. There's a story about a Jewish tax collector who was a Rosha. If you've ever learned Gomorrah, you would know whenever tax collectors are mentioned, they're always Roshayim. We, se- we seem to have a no taxation without representation bone running in our, in our, in our DNA here. Uh, although as a British person, I think that was a big mistake, but never mind. Um, and he says, Shemes boy, that this Rosha, this Jewish tax collector died. And on the same day he died, and a big Talmud Chochem died in the city as well. So there's a whole procession. They just happened to be the two funeral processions converged and happened to be going out one after the other. And a bunch of bandits uh, attacked them. And they, they dropped the, they dropped the, what do they call them? I think it's called a beer. Uh, dropped the coffins or whatever it was. And they fled. Got all these crazy, horrible gangsters there. But then one of the, the Rav's Talmudim stayed. Uh, and he wouldn't budge. And he didn't get attacked. Um, and after a little while, everybody came out to continue the funerals. And the coffins get mixed up. So what happened was, that when they came to the gravesides, I'll, I'll tell you the rest outside, when they come to the graveside, then what happens is, the, uh, the, ta- the evil tax collector is buried with all the Hespedim in the world. He was an Odom Godel. What a tzaddik this fellow was. Rabbi Desta says it's, it's an interesting insight that he found that geschmack. Even when he was dead, he's gone, yes, I am. Yes, that was true. He saw that being relevant to him. Whereas the tax collector and the only people that came was his family, they sort of threw, <laughs> threw him in, no, and they sort of like, goodbye, uh, and off they left. So the Talmud's extraordinarily upset, why did that happen? 
So this Rebbe came to him in a dream, and he said, it happened to me, anybody know? It happened to me because I once heard a Talmud Chochum being, Talmud Chochum being attacked, criticized, and I kept quiet. So therefore, if I'm not standing up for Talmud Chochum and their honor, as a Talmud Chochum, I don't deserve any honor myself. That's the story. Sometimes you have to get involved in something that's not too pleasant. And defending Talmud Chochum, I felt I had to do it. So I posted this in this, in this page. Fine. So there's two obligations to stand up, to stand, for a ta- stand up for a Talmud Chochum. One is to stand up for a Talmud Chochum when he comes into a room. And one is to stand up for a Talmud Chochum if the Talmud Chochum is being attacked. Now, I'm not idiotic enough to assume that some of the comments and some of the stories that the people put out about going to a Rav that they found wasn't exactly as helpful as they'd hoped uh, were not true. I could imagine such a thing is true. Um, after all, Rabonim are still human beings. And the Divri Yoel, the Satmarov, he famously says, when the Posset says that in Sadik there's no Sadik in the world who does good and doesn't do some sin, then, or makes some mistake. Then the Divriol says, why does the Posset say, why does Kehelis say, Ein Tzadik Ba'oretz, Shiyasa Toiv Eloyechter? Just say, Ein Tzadik? What's Ba'oretz? And he says, if you are dealing with people and their worries and their problems, even if you didn't get it wrong, people will think you got it wrong. If you're dealing with people who come to you in pain, when a person's in pain, then it might not be that they're seeing things objectively. They might see you as not having done enough, given them enough, gone out that extra mile for them, etc. And therefore, that one's guaranteed that if you're dealing, and if you've ever dealt with people, you know this is true, people will say, hey, he wasn't any good, even if you were good, because the problem could be the person. Moshe Rabbeinu, this is an interesting thing. Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, was, uh, he, ha- he really got a lot of criticism from us, from Klal Nisrael. There's a very interesting shtickel here in Bamidbor. It's in Perik Gimel. It's uh, Perik Gimel and it's Nunav. It's talking about when the roles uh, were, were taken away, the role of, uh, of the Bukharim were taken away and given to the Levim. And as you know, there was a more firstborn than Levim. So the thing was that each one would exchange the role. What happens to the one who doesn't have a levy available to, you know, give over his Bechor thing or take it away from him, then they had to give a certain amount of money. And the apostle says this, So after Hashem told him, and Moshe did it, give it to Aaron Lubonov, Al Pi Hashem, Kashiach Hashem is Moshe. Seems a bit as though it's rubbing it in. He already said it. Like God told him, Hashem is Moshe. And the Orachayim says here, why does it emphasize that? Because people said, yeah, where did the money go? Where did the money go? Yeah, he took the money and put it in his own pocket. Yeah. <laughs> or he gave it to his brother. Nepotism. Yeah, I guess. That's Moshe Rabbeinu we're talking about. And I saw, I can't remember, I was looking for actually an hour and a half to find this for you today, and I couldn't find it. But in one of my sorry at home, and I thought it would be 
in Rabbi Rucham, I couldn't find it. Sof goes Sof. He says, when Klal Yisrael got involved in the Egel Azov, and of course this whole business of the role of the Bechariim goes to the Levim, was because of the Egel Azov. But when they got involved in the Egel Azov, as you remember, all the men gave their gold. Uh, how big was the, was the Egel? Do you know how big it was? I always thought it was being a big, great big thing. Small things were that size. So all the men, so what, we're talking 600,000 men, is that right? 600,000 men? And they're all very keen in giving their gold, so the gold rings and stuff like that. That's a lot of gold. What happened to the rest of the gold? A little thing comes out the fire, right? Why didn't somebody say, hey, we must have given a ton of gold. Why isn't a huge eagle? Why isn't a cow? And the answer is, when it's a Dabashib Kedusha, then the Yitzhahara says, oh, or the Sultan gets involved, yeah, well, Moshe put it in his hand. There's no difficult, no embarrassment of saying, whoa, Moshe stole the money. When it's something which is one of his projects, nobody's asking questions. As the Chavetz Chaim famously said, when two people came to collect money in Raden for their time because the shul had burnt down, they got the money very quickly and very easily, and the Chavetz Chaim said, Medaf Bodit sign. I have to check into these guys, and they turned out to be frauds. The Sultan doesn't let money go to good projects. It's a struggle, it's a fight. Ask any Rosh Hashiva. But for something which is not kosher, no money goes at that. Oh, Moshe Rabbeinu, put the money in his pocket. You're Moshe Rabbeinu, you've saved their lives. I, I tell you how I would feel about this. If I was Moshe Rabbeinu, I'd saved your life umpteen times. You should have been in Egypt, except for me. And you think I, I stole $50,000? Took me type. Apart from the fact he was a very rich man. Yeah. So, Taka, if you're a rov, it's not easy being a rabbi. Uh, all you're going to do is get criticized even when you're not guilty, or there's no accusation at all. People will make accusations up against you. And I think I told you when we were chosen here before, and I think it's a very important point. If I was the Yitzhahara, if I was the Sultan, if I wanted to destroy Klaalistrom, there's a very good way to do it, and that is to simply um, dissolve or erode their faith in their Chachomim. Uh, remember, I told you once about the boxer who punched me in the nose. Does that ring a bell? Um, basically, uh, there was a, I used to work when I was um, at college. I used to get a, su- had a summer job working in a big warehouse. And one of the guys there had, in his professional life had been a boxer. And you probably know that if you punch somebody a lot in the head, it causes brain damage. And it's called punch drunk. And I was like, this guy here is called Big Joe. And he was big. And he'd been a boxer. And he was a very nice fellow. But he used to do this. <laughs> When he was talking to you, hey, you doing Joe? Fine, fine, fine. Um, which is very interesting when you're talking to somebody like this. And he used to all sorts of uh, maxims, all sorts of uh, little uh, vertlich from the world of boxing. One was, kill the head and the body dies. Now, if you've ever seen people boxing, if somebody punches you on the chest or on the stomach, you can take quite a few punches to the stomach. But one, one, good, <laughs> one good punch to the person's head, and it's. Right. And I don't know if you ever saw the children's cartoons ever, but normally when they punch somebody or they hit them in the head with the, you know, the rock or whatever, you see the, sort of like, you know, the stars. And like. Well, I was talking to Joe once, and he had a flashback to his days in the ring. And I was his opponent. And I was just talking to him. And he's going, and suddenly, on my nose. And it's just like the cartoons. There I was, lying there. <laughs> You do see stars. <laughs> um, 
And anyways, he was so upset and he was apologizing and he you know, once they brought me around, uh, blood everywhere. <coughs> Don't tell the boss he was begging me. I wasn't interested in telling the boss. I was more interested in locating the part of my head that my nose was now located on. Um, but anyway, it's a very interesting idea. Kill the head and the body dies. When the Nazis, Yamash and would come to a Jewish shtetl, the first thing they would do was to kill the head so the body would die. Send out your rabbis. Send out your rabbis. And if I was the Yitzhahor, if I wanted to destroy Klal Yisrael and our Devekas to, to Torah, Let's get rid of the rabbis. Or make fun of them. and the rabbis. Just make, make them, make Litzonus out of the rabbis. And indeed, that's what the Gemara says. You don't need rabbonim. Khalila b'chalila. Are all rabbonim perfect? Absolutely not. Of course rabbonim make mistakes. Uh, do they try? Uh, I think that's a, a different question altogether. And uh, it's getting a bit late. And I don't want to... If you've had cholent, do we have cholent tonight? Oh. <laughs> so cruel. You give me cholent first. You give me cholent afterwards so you can stay awake. Um, in Derek Hashem, which I just finished learning with Michael Vrusa, he talks about the menorah, and the thing about the menorah is, of course, that it generates light, light and everything about the, the kalim of the Mishkan and the Besa Mikdosh, it, it, it paralleled something. What was the menorah? The menorah was, it gave light, that's talking about that's talking about, it was, you ever see, again, we're going back to the cartoon, you see the little light bulb pops in somebody's head? Bing! The eureka moment? That's what the, what the menorah's job was. And listen, to, I'll read it just a little bit to you. The menorah in the Mishkan, it was, its role was the Torah Shabal Peh. Nobody knows that Moshe Rabbeinu got the 613 uh, mitzvahs and the explanation. Fine. Listen to this for Kiddush. Oh, this incidentally is not uh, the Derek Hashem. This is uh, uh, a Talmud of Ramosha Shapiro. Um, and uh, he writes here, he's a, it's called Rabbi Ram Baum, and Ramosha gives him a, it's quite a scholarly work. But he says the following thing, the idea is not in just that the Rabbonim, their role is just to say over the halachas and the, and the dikdukim. That they, godless of Chachamim and the godless of the menorah, was to be Maramas that Chachamim get this light bulb thing, bing! This eureka moment where they're able to see things in the Torah that weren't seen before to make, make Kiddushim. Famous story of Moshe Benin going up and seeing, seeing Rabbi Akiva. He's sitting in the back of the shear and he couldn't understand what Rabbi Akiva was teaching. Chachamim are able to not just say over, but to be mechadish, bring new insights according to the, whether you're living in Muncie or whether you're living in England or, you're, or what time we live in. The Torah has to fit that as well. Chachamim see that. Chachamim know that. Take that away from Klal Yisrael. Klal Yisrael is finished. Criticize Chachamim. And I say, literally every single one of about 50 posts were attacking, attacking. When I put mine on, of course, I was attacked as well. I'm quite telling you, if you're interested in the, the viciousness, all you need to do on Facebook or these places is to defend Torah or to defend the Haredish world, or defend Rabonim, boom! And people will go for you. It's just absolutely horrible. 
I remember telling you once a, a true story. I, I, I write, as you probably know, for Hamadiyya and a couple of other place, uh, places. I wrote a true story about somebody whom I met. I was doing a Shabbaton in uh, a little town somewhere in the south. And I met there a couple, an elderly couple. Oh, sorry, elderly, actually, not true. 60s, <laughs> like me. <laughs> Young, vibrant, the new middle age. Um, and they were very sad, a very sad couple. I mean, they looked sad. They came from Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a reason to be sad. Um, but they moved to this place in, you know, Eckveld. And they explained to me that, and they were from a couple. I mean, they made, it was sort of sure that, you know, if you get a minion during the week, that's a, that's a miracle. There were about 50 people for Shabbos. Anyway, uh, what were they doing there? So they'd been in some sort of geshev, some sort of business with a partner in Brooklyn, and the guy had run away with the money. Uh, all the money, they'd gone to some rabbi, and the rabbi tried to help, but he hadn't been able to help, and they felt let down by the rabbi, they felt let down by the kahila, and they were finished with Brooklyn, and, and they went to this place. I wrote about this, and I pointed out that the rabbi had tried to help, so their bitterness is that they felt he hadn't tried enough. Um, and then a fellow wrote to me, and he was furious, and I, because I want to justify and say that the rabbi had probably done as much as he could. No, said this fellow, incidentally a very cautious of rabbinic name. No, said this fellow, privately writing to me. A rabbi can always do more. And this, what you write, is just an excuse. And they should have helped more. No, actually, I agree. Of course the rabbi could always do more. But who said the rabbi should always do more? When I told you this last time, I told you my sister-in-law is a very wise lady. She's an older lady now. All of her life, she had a motto, a mantra, they call it. And the mantra is very clever. It really is an echo of what the Rambam says, which is always the mitla shaderech, always the, the golden mean, always in, you know, in the middle. She said, optimum, not maximum. Optimum, not maximum. Now, I believe the New York Marathon is about to take place. Have you ever seen, I don't know if you've ever, I fly a lot. Whenever you fly, there's all these TV screens, you know, at the gate before you go out. And there's always, it always seems to be sports. Particularly when it comes to the Olympic Games. Man, they're all full of this. I was sitting there once, and it was the 100 meters race. You have the elite athletes from all over the world who are incredibly, incredibly talented and have been training for this moment for four years. And they get in the starting blocks like this. There's a guy there with a starting pistol. He fires the gun into the air, they're off, as fast as they can. Actually, if he didn't fire the gun into the air, then they'd probably go a little bit quicker. Uh, but anyway, so off they go running like crazy, and then they reach the end, and then that's it. You know, they go through the tape, and they, ah, one guy falls over, the other guy's standing there, so his hands in his side, somebody's carried off in the stretcher. I actually think that's the most interesting bit of the whole thing. Um, and that's that. 100 meters, about. But you've got other athletes, who are going to, in New York, show you this in just a few, sec a few days' time. A marathon's 26 and a quarter miles, if I remember correctly. Now, this is a Pella. 26 and a quarter miles. But the guy who goes all out 100 meters, whoosh, right? At the end of that 100 meters, they get nothing left. And he's lying there in a heap on the ground. Whereas the guys who do the, you know, who do the, the uh, marathon, they jog, right? They pace themselves. It's optimum, not maximum. You can do maximum for a very short space of time, and then you're dead, or dead beat. Uh, but then, if you pace yourself, so 
optimum, not maximum. Yeah, of course the rabbi could do more. But what about his own children? As Rabbi Dessa says at the, front, at the beginning of Mikta Melion, so many Rabbonim's children went off the derech because their father was busy looking after other people and other people's problems and not looking after his own children or maybe not even noticing his own children were having problems. I can't remember which god it was, but a certain Rav said that his father had written some, over 20 sforim. And he said, Ad hayom hazeh, to this moment in time, I've never been able to open even one of my daddy's sforim. I know what the writing of those sforim cost the family. And I have to tell you, look, I'm a rabbi, and people do come to me for advice and stuff like that. But I hope I put my children first. Okay, I don't think I'd be anything like a rabbi, a decent rabbi, that you should listen to advice for, from, if I didn't put my own family first. And then, what comes after? So maybe there was, it was true that people went to, to a rabbi, or a person goes to a rabbi, and maybe the rabbi didn't help. But there's a mess of Don Lekafskus for a boy, sorry. I remember when I was a young kid, I went to see, I was, I was 19, I was in Manchester, there's a road there called Cavendish Road, I went to see a lovely, lovely fellow who wanted to help me in something I was doing. And his wife opened the door. I'd never met the wife before. And this guy was friendly and warm, schmeichel, fantastic. And the lady opened the door, and she was the opposite. I mentioned to somebody before, um, took off my, my cardigan before I started the shear, I said, is it hot in here? Or is it just me? And he said to me, yeah, it's very hot. We need more Calta lit facts like you, you know, get the... <laughs> so the, the, husband, the husband is more of a chosid, and the wife was a Kaltalip, I'm a Kaltalip, I was a Kaltalip, and I, I, was, I remember, because I was only 19, walking away from the door, I was like, Phew, she was unfriendly. Gosh, she's so unlike him. Well, she was certainly unlike him two weeks later when she was dead. She knew she had only a few days left, she was dying of cancer. And yeah, she wasn't so friendly. I just saw, because my, I'd come, and I'd, I had a problem. And I wanted it solved. And of course, me, 19 years of age, whatever the problem was, it must have been ma massive, uh, was the most important thing in the world. And she wasn't so friendly. Maybe something was going on in her life. I never thought of that because I was a kid. Yeah, the woman was dying of brain cancer. She had two weeks left. And she died two weeks later. And maybe you go and see a rabbi and maybe he does it. Yeah, sometimes rabbis are human beings. Inside it, but or she has to turn on the Is, uh, let me ask you, let me ask you, if you've been with me, this, I, looking around here, do you know any Gadolim? Do you know any Rabonim? I can show you the picture last night I went to see the two nights ago, Ramatzio Solomon. I'll show you the picture of my old, my great Rebbe, Ramatzio Solomon. Uh, I remember in Gateshead, his brother was called Joe Solomon. And Joe Solomon was the milkman. He had the milk business in Gateshead. And I became his deputy milkman. Because he needed to go to Simcoe's, but he had to be up at to be at the farm at 5 o'clock in the morning. You have to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning to drive to a place called Sunderland in order to shower the, the milk and bring it back to Gateshead, etc. But, of course, if he wanted to go to Hasner in London, he was never going to get back. <laughs> so he needed a deputy. So would I do it? So I said, yes. Yeah. So I went with him the first morning. I got up at um, 4 in the morning to get there at 5. Loved that. And uh, I did all the shmira, and he told me what to do. Fine. Next day he's going to the class and he said, are you sure you've got, fine. He said, I'm going to leave you a list of all the things you have to do. And, um, and he put it through a letterbox with the, with the keys for the van. And that was that. So I, I looked at the list. Item number one, wake up at four o'clock. Item number two, phone Ramatisio Salman. 
Phone my brother Matisio, Reb Matisio. Because that's when he got up. No, what time did he get to sleep? Well, my late wife and, uh, and I were very close to Ramazio's late wife um, and he. And uh, so at one o'clock in the morning, that's when the younger light of Gateshead used to start coming. Because, of course, it's the Meshachik of the Yeshiva. So he's busy all day long with the Bokrim and their problems. But, you know, at one o'clock for the marrieds, they used to come in one, two o'clock. If he got to bed at two o'clock, is what his late wife told my late wife, that was a very good night. And then he got up at four. Now, I don't know where you get the koyak from that. But he didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't see these boys. I can't see these men with the marriage problems. It's just he took it all from himself. Oh, what? He went for an hour's sleep in the afternoon. So three hours. That was his norm. Oh, that beautiful story I told you. Remember, I think I told you the story. Of Shlomo Zalman, when you find it in one of the books, of Shlomo Zalman, a couple came to him because they had a special needs kid. And the special needs kid, um, um, the parents were not sure which school to send them to. There were three possibilities in Yerushalayim. One at Amayla, the other over the other one, Chassar, weren't sure, <laughs> Jewish parents, of course, uh, which school to send to. So discussing with Shlomo Zalman, if Shlomo Zalman listened, they said, and uh, what does your son say? So they looked at each other, utterly baffled. Oh, what does your son say? Because we haven't discussed it with him. And frankly, he wouldn't understand. You're sitting against the soul of this child. Go and bring him to me. And they went and brought this little child. He sat this little boy on his, on his lap and he said, what's your name? I can't remember the name. It's called David. David, my name's Shalom Zalman. And I'm the God Hador. Now, uh, you're going to be going to a school now and there's a couple of choices. I'd like to hear what you think. But whatever one we're going to decide for you, I want you uh, to be my shaliach. You will represent me in this school and make sure that the cash is all right and everything is going according to the law. Would you be willing to do that for me, David? Okay, in that case, I'll have to give you smicha. He put his hands on the little boy's head and said, right, I'm ordaining you a rabbi. Now, when that little boy went to the school, he wanted to go to the school. He didn't feel his parents had thrown him out. When it was time to come back for a Shabbos, because every third Shabbos they got to come back, he didn't want to go. He'd been appointed by the god Ladar to be in charge of the school. Does that sound like a rabbi who doesn't care, who speaks insensitively? So honestly, what's your experience? I've been Zoycha to be close to Gedolim, Rosh Yeshivas, Chassidish Rebis. My experience of them is, well, there's a posuk and again, every time I'd read it to you, um, in Ruach Chaim, right at the beginning of Ruach Chaim, then he brings a posuk which says that Chachamim are like clusters of grapes. The greater the grapes grow, the lower they go. It weighs down the vine and it goes to the ground. The greater the time of Chacham, the more humble they are. And in my experience with, with Rabonim and Gedonim, the greater they are. That's true. Are there exceptions? I suppose. But that's a yoitzimineklal. Because the greater they are, the humbler they are. Like Moshe Rabbeinu. To typify to say, to invite attacks in the Chachamim. I feel sorry for this rabbi. I don't know. Maybe I'll send him a copy of this video. I'm really scared for him. It's not a, a clever thing to do. It's not a sensible thing to do to attack our Chachamim. Do they make mistakes? Yes. Because in Sadipa or Shiasa And that's even if they get it right, people will think that they've done things wrong. But to invite 
a celebration of attacking and criticizing Gedonim Bechlau to invite people to think we don't need Rabonim anymore. As Rashi says when the Posik and Shoftim go to the to the the, the, the Chomim of your time, he says, Good nobody else except the Chomim of your time. And without Chomim we are dead as Islam. That's what the Sotan says. Kill the head and the body dies. To invite the people to think about killing the head is to invite the danger of killing Claudius Rome. And I'm sure this fellow is a nice fellow. But this is a huge mistake. Because we're machuv to stand up for Tomir Chomim when they come into a room. And we're machuv to stand up for Tomir Chomim when they're attacked by people who, according to the Gemara and the Mashah, are in danger of becoming Apicors.